Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to go back a few chapters in a moment, but we're going to begin in Exodus 17 verse 7. As you're turning in your Bibles this morning, don't forget our special services this week. Wednesday is our regular lineup with kids' choirs, supper, Bible studies, and adult choir. But then beginning Thursday, we have two special services, our Maundy Thursday service at 6 p.m. It'll be in the fellowship hall directly below where we are right now. We'll have a covered dish meal. And as you leave today, on top of some other things I'll tell you about later, there's a sign-up sheet on the welcome table in the back. Uh, to sign up for something to bring for Thursday. So please sign up, bring something to share for that meal. We'll go then into a service of scripture and song and the Lord's Supper on Thursday. And then again on Friday for our Good Friday service at 6 p.m. we will meet here in the sanctuary. And the choir will sing and we'll sing some songs together and we're going to hear from the seven last words of Christ from the cross as we meditate on what our Savior did for us. So again, Thursday at 6, Friday at 6, regular activities Wednesday, and of course next week, next Lord's Day, Easter Sunday, be prepared to come and worship our risen Savior. Invite someone to join you for each of these services. It's easy just to tell someone about it. Take one of those flyers on the back table and invite them to come. Free meal on Thursday. There's no better draw than that for some people. Just say free meal, come join us, and then we'll also get to share the gospel with them, even as you're sharing the gospel with them. Look at Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. He called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, if this was a mini-series on Netflix, we would begin this series with this picture but maybe we would have forgotten what happened before. And in fact, if we had that mini-series introduction last time on Journeys in Exodus, it would show us what just happened as the people came through the Red Sea. And then we would pick up on this scene, is the Lord among us or not? And we must wonder, what happened? What happened between that scene and the escape through the middle of the sea and the dancing and the tambourine shaking and the singing? And the praising of God that we ended with a few weeks ago. And now this. As we come to chapter 15 in a minute, we'll see that not a month has passed since the Red Sea miracle. And now we come to this. Quarreling. Grumbling. Complaining. And so this scene doesn't quite fit with where we ended last time. One commentator I was reading, Alexander McLaren, said it this way. Unbelief has a short memory. Unbelief has a short memory. Have you known that kind of short memory? Have you known that kind of confusion in your life where you stop in the middle of some circumstance and you say, is God with me or not? In some need, in some pain, physical or otherwise, some suffering, physical or otherwise, some trial, 
It's so easy to forget for us what God has done. And it's even easier when he does not act when and as we think he should. And sometimes that prompts this kind of questioning. Where are you, God? Are you with me or are you not? Now, as Israel slipped into unbelief here, they could have been wiped out immediately for this sin of unbelief. God could have rained down fire from heaven and consumed them for their doubting, their quarreling, their complaining, their grumbling. But he doesn't. We're going to see today that he shows them grace and mercy time and time again. He shows them his provision. He shows them his grace. And you and I can know today as his people that we have those same promises. God's provision, God's protection, God's presence. And you say, how do I know that I have those promises? Because the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So as we celebrate this Palm Sunday and remember this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, as the crowd cried, Hosanna, Lord, save us, Lord, deliver us. Christ was entering the city that day as God's provision, as God's very presence. We might stop and ask, how is this humble king riding on a donkey? The yes and amen of all of God's promises. Let's look a little closer at our story today from Exodus chapter 15, just a few pages to the left there. We'll begin in verse 22, Exodus 15, 22. As God turns bitter to sweet. Bitter to sweet. Let's go back and see how we got to that scene in 17 where the people said, Are you with us or are you not? Let's see what led up to that moment. Verse 22, Exodus 15, the people have an understandable concern. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. That's an understandable concern. That is a life need to have water. And now it has been three days, and they have found no water. Now, they probably have water in some skins or some containers that they have stored, but all of that is beginning to deplete, and it has been three days since they have seen any water. And when they finally do come to water, in verse 23, it says they came to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So when they finally do get to water, it's bitter, and it's undrinkable. And they begin to grumble against Moses and against the Lord. Now, this is a real, physical, understandable need for water. If God wants to preserve his people and actually get them to make it to the promised land, sometime in the wilderness, they're going to need water. There is no sin in the physical need. There is no sin in the asking of the meeting of that physical need. Listen, there's no sin in asking not just for needs, but for wants. Bring all of your requests and petitions before the Lord, Paul says, with thanksgiving. And there's the problem. The people are not bringing their request and their petition before the Lord with thanksgiving, but they have entered into the sin of unbelief as evidenced by their grumbling. Just simply put, they're complaining. 
They're complaining to Moses. They're complaining to Aaron. They're complaining to God. Forgetting what he has done for them already, they come to this moment and they begin to complain and to doubt. And how does God respond? I mean, I know how I would respond if I was God and someone was grumbling and complaining to me after all I had done for them. I think you know how you would respond as well. But look what happens in verse 25. Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. How does God respond? With a plague? With fire? I'll tell you what, you don't like the water? I'll turn this water to blood too. No, God doesn't do that. He makes the water sweet so that they can drink it and be nourished. He changes the bitter to sweet. And isn't that what he's been doing all along? From slavery to freedom. From captivity to liberty. From the danger of Pharaoh's encroaching army to the miracle through the Red Sea and the crushing of Pharaoh's army. He's been turning bitter to sweet all along. This has been the pattern. Don't they notice? Haven't they seen? Don't they remember? Well, God begins to tell us now that this has been a test. I couldn't say those words without thinking of the, you know, this has been a test of the emergency broadcasting system. But that's what came to mind, and so that's what I titled the point. So you've got to deal with it. This has been a test. Look at what he says at the end of verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. How do we know he tested them? Well, he says he tested them, but look down in verse 27. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They were going to Elim anyway. They were going to where there was water anyway. God was bringing them there. But before they got there, God said, okay, I'm going to test my people. And how did they do? Verse 26, did they listen diligently to the voice of the Lord? Did they do that which is right in his eyes? Did they give ear to his commandments? Did they keep all his statutes? No, they've already failed at that so many times. And they will continue to fail at that so many times. But thank God his deliverance is not based upon their faithfulness or their obedience. But it's based upon his own faithfulness. Look at what he says at the end of verse 26 there. I am the Lord, your healer. You might have heard it said, Jehovah Jireh, or not Lord of my father, Jehovah Rapha, or as they would have said, Yahweh Rapha. The Lord is our healer. The Lord is literally our physician. The Lord is our doctor. The Lord is the one who saves us, who delivers us, who makes bitter sweet, who brings sickness into health, who brings death where there is, or brings life where there is death. And the people here are faithless, unbelieving, grumbling, complaining. And yet God still reveals himself in this way. I am the Lord, your healer. I am the Lord, your provider. I am the Lord, your physician. I am the Lord who will guide you and lead you and heal you. So although they failed the test, this is who God is to his people. And it is who God is to you this morning. We come to the second story here in Exodus chapter 16. Bread from heaven. The last foot has not left Elim where there was water. 
when the people begin to grumble again. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, can you imagine what is going through these people's minds when God has done all that he has done for them and brought them to the point already forgiven their previous grumbling and complaining about the water, turning bitter to sweet, sustaining them, providing for their needs, and yet here they are again, beginning to grumble and complain to Moses and ultimately to God. God says in verse 4, actually this is another test. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. It's another test. God says they're hungry. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. And they're supposed to gather for six days. And then there's going to be some sort of test. We're going to see what this test is in a minute. But for now, God says this is the test. And we're going to see who obeys. To gather twice as much on the sixth day. Trusting in God's provision and his sovereignty and goodness on that seventh day. Another test, another opportunity to trust God, another opportunity to obey God. It's because it's all about him anyway. Look at verse 8, chapter 16. Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full... Because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumbled against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses reveals what's really going on here, doesn't he? Your complaint is not with us, Moses says. You can complain all you want to Moses and to Aaron. We're not the ones that set you free. Look back in verse 6. Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, Evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This isn't about us. Why are you bringing these complaints to us? Why are you grumbling against, against us? Because when you grumble and complain against us, Moses and Aaron, God's chosen servant leaders for you, you're actually grumbling and complaining against God. Because while we may have led you out of Egypt, it was God who caused you to be freed from captivity in Egypt. And what is he going to do for you? Verse 7 In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? I love how several times here in this passage, God says that he's going to do something miraculous and wonderful in providing for these people. And it says both times, because he heard their grumbling. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around that kind of mercy and grace. God could say, I'm going to give you bread, not because you're so great, but because I'm so good. And that's true. But two times here, he says, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to give you meat to eat and bread to eat because I heard your complaining. How could have God responded to their complaining, to their grumbling? 
Before we even know what this test is, it's not looking good for the people of Israel. In their complaining and their murmuring against Moses and God. But again, how does God respond? Well, he shows them his glory. And look down in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. How does God respond to their complaining and their groaning? Showing them his glory, speaking to them in his glory, giving them quail to eat in the evening and bread to eat in the morning. This frost-like manna, that's what the word means. What is it that covered the ground every single morning? This was God's provision. And Moses said, this is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. So again, the people have a need. They grumble, but God meets that need above and beyond what they could ever ask or think. And now God says, beginning in verse 16, now a test. He says in verse 16, this is what the Lord commands, gather of it each of you as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer, about a half a gallon, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much and had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So here's the test. Gather only what you can eat for the day for your household. No more, no less. Whatever is left will be rotting and filled with worms and stinking in the morning. God says, don't get ahead of me in my providing for you. Each day will bring with it its daily bread. Trust God and obey him. And don't take more than you need for the day. So do you think they passed or do you think they failed? You know how this goes by now, don't you? Verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Again, their grumbling turns into unbelief, and their unbelief turns into disobedience. And they refuse to listen to what God has said. Now, there's another test that begins in verse 22, probably the second part of this test. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when the leaders of the congregation came to Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So he begins to tell them, on the sixth day, before the Sabbath day, gather twice as much as you need. See, Moses, I thought, now listen, you said gather only what you need for the day because tomorrow it will be rotting and stinking and filled with worms. And now you say on the sixth day, gather twice as much and it will be fine the next day? Now they couldn't obey the Lord in the first command to gather what they need just for the one day. And now they've seen how that turns out. And now Moses said, Okay, go ahead and collect twice as much on the sixth day, getting ready for that Sabbath day. Now, there is no Sabbath law yet 
We're not to Exodus 19 and Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. There is no Sabbath law yet. But God is beginning here to establish the principle of the Sabbath. That if you will trust God and obey God, he will provide for your needs. And that's what they're trying to be taught here. He will provide for your daily needs. And when he commands you to obey him in the specific way on the sixth day, he will provide for you on the seventh day. And it will not rot or stink or be filled with worms, but you will have what you need for that day. Look down at verse 27. Let's see how they did. On the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? They still go out on the seventh to see what they could find. Maybe not having gathered as much as they needed on the sixth day because they doubted the Lord and thought it would rot. So they wait till the seventh day and they say, let's just see what happens. But there's nothing there. And again, they fail the test in their unbelief. And God says to Moses, what is wrong with this people? Don't they understand that when I give a command, it is to be obeyed and I will take care of them? Yet they did not trust God to provide daily. Any day or on the Sabbath day. So in all the tests, they keep failing. But if the test is on God's faithfulness, he keeps on providing. And so by this point, you might be asking, as maybe they were, what's with the tests? God, do you, do you not know the future? Do you not know all things, God? Do you not know how we're going to respond? Was, was God doing this to, to actually, let's see what happens, to see how I will respond to these people? Of course God doesn't need these tests to inform him of the unbelief of his people. He knows the unbelief of Israel. He knows the turnout for all of this. So when we think about these tests, we should see them as a trial. Not a test to see how they will do, pass or fail, and they fail miserably. But a trial so as to take them through something in order for them to learn something. To take them through something so that they will learn to trust him. So that they will learn to obey him. Many of you know, all of us know, that the Spirit will often bring us to a wilderness of testing. A wilderness of trial to learn, to grow, to be made more like Christ, to grow in our holiness. Some of you in this room today just have stuff that you've got to go through. It's easy to take the prosperity gospel answer and begin to bind this and bind that and cancel cancer and cancel sickness. And I speak life and I speak this and I decree this and just expect it to happen in Jesus' name like magic. That sounds easy. But I want to ask you what those people are left with on the other side of that when it does not go as they asked. Was it something wrong with my faith? Did I not believe enough? Did I not say Jesus' name enough? Did I have doubt? Did I have this? Did I have this? And they begin to doubt themselves. Or worse, they begin to doubt God and question God 
and maybe even abandon God. No, in your trials and in your suffering and in your need, very real suffering in this room today, I have no easy answer. I have no quick fix. I have no magic formula to give you to make it all go away. You just have to trust that when God brings you into the wilderness of testing, he is bringing you there to teach you something, ultimately to bring you closer to him, to make you more like Jesus, and to make the fruit of the Spirit more evident in your life. And you can trust that all of it, Romans 8, 28, is for your good, your ultimate good, to be made more like Christ. It will not all be pleasant. The best lessons in life are not pleasant ones. Sometimes you just got to be hungry. Sometimes you just need to be thirsty. Sometimes, church, you just have to be tired to know that your satisfaction is not found in bread and water and riches, but your satisfaction is found in God. These lessons and tests, we will often fail One of my commentaries said God was not just filling their bellies. He was trying to shepherd their hearts. How often we pray to God, fill our bellies and whatever other need we have. Fill our bellies, fill our bellies, fill our bank account, fill this, fill that, heal this, heal that, do this, do that. Failing to understand that all along the way, God is trying to shepherd your heart. Oh, what wondering Lost, confused sheep, we often are. Aren't you glad Psalm 103 verse 10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sin. But even in my unbelief, even in my distrust, even in my disobedience, God showers us with his grace and his kindness and his provision. And even when I grumble and even when I complain in rebellion against him and against his plan, God gives us bread from heaven. And we say, what is it, Lord? What is all this? We can hear the voice of the Lord saying, it is the bread that God has given you. Moses wants the people to remember this in chapter 16, verses 31 through 36. Specifically, just look at verse 32. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness and I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Passover, God said, remember, keep doing this generation to generation, so that they may ask and they may know what God has done. And here again, God says, keep a little bit of this manna, this bread from heaven, so that as generation to generation to generation passes, they may see this and they may remember and recount how God took care of his people and how God will continue to take care of his people. How keen God is on his people remembering what he has done. Through the Passover, through other feasts, altars, names, stones, these signs of remembrance. So that one generation can tell the next what God has done in providing for them, protecting them, his presence being with them. And he gives them these signs, these acts to remember what God 
had done for them. But they don't, and we often don't. Chapter 17 shows us that didn't last long. No sooner have they begun to move again, verse 1, chapter 17, that we see a familiar problem. The people of Israel moved on from the wilderness by scene, by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Again, understandable problem, understandable concern. But you think that someone in the crowd would say, you know, God did all of that in Egypt. He brought us through the Red Sea. He's already given us water to drink once. He's given us quail from in the evening and bread to eat from heaven in the morning. I think, I think he can probably find some water for us. You think someone would get that by now? Verse 2 tells us otherwise. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You know, if I was Moses, I would probably have that little bit memorized by now. When the people come and they start complaining, let me guess. Why did you, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt to die and to be happy? Uh, I would not be a, a good deliverer. Verse 4, so Mo- Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So it's come to a climax, hasn't it? They're grumbling and complaining against Moses, against Aaron, against God. Now they're ready, even in their discontentment, to kill Moses. Unbelief has a short memory. And so what? God is done. God is outraged. That's it. Fire, death, wrath. Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. You know, remember that old staff? What's that in your hand, Moses? The staff. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. No plague, no wrath, no indignation, not even a reprimand, which they were certainly owed. Go strike the rock, and I will provide water for this people. Moses called the place Massah and Meribah, verse 7. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Yes, we know the test by now. God has been testing the people and testing the people and testing the people. But do you see this turn here at the end of this passage? It is no longer God testing the people. But now the people are testing God. Is the Lord among us or not? The gall of these people deliverance from Egypt miraculous retreat through the Red Sea deliverance and destruction from their enemies provision in the wilderness water meat bread the pillar of cloud by day the pillar of fire by night as God leads them and protects them and guides them and yet with each passing test of their belief and their trust and their obedience they fail miserably Choosing instead to grumble and to complain against Moses, but ultimately against God. 
to the point where it is not even God testing them, but them testing God. Jonathan Edwards famously preached the sermon in the Great Awakening Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I heard a preacher one time say that we're no longer living in a church where that can be preached, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Rather, we have God in the hands of angry sinners. And that's what's going on here in this passage. No longer God testing them, but they think that they can put themselves in judgment over God. You see what a terrible, terrible spirit grumbling and complaining and murmuring is. We've got to work with our kids on this, don't we? Kids ask for something and they say they want something from daddy or mommy. And sometimes you guys say, whoa, 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 whoa. Why don't you try asking that again in a nicer way? Why don't you try keeping those eyes in the middle of your face instead of rolling them up when you ask me for something? That same spirit rises up in them of grumbling and murmuring, complaining. And here's the secret, and you know it. It rises up in you too. To where that justified desire for something, a need, or even a want can turn into a complaint, unfortunately. Grumbling and murmuring and complaining become the downfall of a local church. And you see it all over the place as this church shuts its doors or that church shuts its doors. And sometime in the past, they failed to trust God. And they failed to love and trust their leaders. And they turned in on themselves. And they began to devour themselves. And where was the start of it, you think? One grumbling voice. One murmuring complaint. Not justified concerns, but just whining. And God judges his people for that. He judges his people in the Bible for that. But isn't that grumbling spirit just the symptom of a deeper problem? In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the Lord Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if what is being spoken is grumbling and complaining, unbelief, what does that say is in the heart except unbelief, distrust, rebellion? And so what is revealed when we complain and murmur against God and his provision is not just skepticism or innocent doubt, but it's that same deception that snared Adam and Eve in the garden when the serpent said, did God really say? Instead of trusting in God's provision and protection and presence, we drift into unbelief. And what is unbelief if not a rejection of what God has said? A failure to praise him for what he has done. What is unbelief except as these people did, dethroning God and presuming that we should be the ones to test him? What a terrible, dangerous place that is to be. Yet, it is where we all are in our sin apart from Christ. And as we stand before him, as Israel did, we are ripe for judgment. We are ripe for his condemnation. We are fitted for hell. If that's the test, we all fail. We have failed. We will continue to fail miserably.
But, thank God, you will recall another testing. As Jesus is driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness, as the people of Israel were in the wilderness, 40 years Jesus is here in the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights, fasting, and he's hungry, understandably. And Satan comes and says, what? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Testing. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple. Won't God protect you, Jesus? Bow down before me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, Satan says. Testing God's provision. Testing God's protection. Testing God's presence. Adam failed his test in the garden. Israel failed her test in the wilderness. But here is Jesus, tested, tried, tempted, and victorious. How is he victorious? Because to each of the testings that Satan brings against him, what does Jesus say? It is written. It is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Love the Lord your God and serve him only. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where you and I fail every single day, here is Jesus in perfect obedience, perfect trust, perfect worship, victorious in his test. So that means what happens next in Holy Week is all the more peculiar. As these shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quickly turn with another crowd just a few days later into shouts of crucify him, crucify him. And on that good Friday, just as God had struck the Nile and all of Egypt, and just as Moses had struck this water, this rock for water to run out for the people, Jesus is struck. Not by a staff or the hammer or the nails or the whip or the cross. No, the Son of God was struck, stricken, smitten, and afflicted by the swift and unrelenting blow of the justice of God as water and blood flowed from his side. Was this justice for his failures? Was this justice for his sins? No, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Jesus, the rock of ages, is stricken for my failures, my sins, my unbelief, my grumbling. So that in him, I might know God's provision and God's protection and God's presence. So that in him, you might know all the promises of God as yes and amen. 
A fountain opened for the forgiveness of sins. Bread given from heaven for the hungry soul. All that we need found there in Christ and him crucified. I hear Israel say in the wilderness, we're thirsty, give us water. Even as I see God providing water for his people in the wilderness, I see a woman sitting by a well in Samaria, thirsty, deep down in her soul. And I hear the Savior say to her in John chapter 4, verse 13, this is the water that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And the woman understandably says, sir, give me this water always. I hear Israel in the wilderness saying, we're hungry, give us bread. Even as I see God providing bread from heaven. And I see another throng of people in the countryside, hungry, as the disciples scramble to find them something to eat. As the Savior takes just five loaves and two fish and miraculously feeds thousands. And I hear Jesus saying, this is the bread of God from heaven that gives life to the world in John 6, 33. And the people respond, sir, give us this bread always. But Jesus is not offering mere bread. Jesus is not offering mere water. No, he says in John 6, 51, I am. I am the bread that came down from heaven. He says in John 7 verse 38, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in verse 39 of John 7, he says, this was about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Do you see? Do you believe? Your greatest, most urgent, and eternal need is not bread and water for your body, but sustenance for your soul. And Jesus says, I am. Do you struggle to trust God? To believe God in your hours of need? Do you quickly forget what God has already done for you and slip so easily into grumbling and complaining? Be reminded today from Romans 8.32 that he who did not spare his own son, how will he not freely with him give us all things? He cares for the lilies of the field. He cares for the birds of the air. And Jesus says, are you not more precious than birds. He has already taken care of your greatest need in Christ and he placed your sin upon him and gave you his perfect righteousness. Don't you think he can take care of your daily bread for today? For tomorrow? Under Moses and the law, God sent bread from heaven, but it was only enough for each day. No leftovers. Under the law, God revealed what he wanted his people to know for that time. But with the coming of Christ and the gospel, we have the bread from heaven. And there's basket upon basket upon basket upon basket into eternity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 
935-5604. We'll see you next time.